This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. Andy here, filling in for Mike while he's in New Orleans. Today, we've got a special episode lined up for you all. Mike and Josh actually got the chance to bring back their friend Kwame Christian for a part three interview discussing Kwame's new book, Negotiation, and a whole lot more. Early on in the show, Kwame got the chance to talk about how he ended up being drawn towards negotiation and how competing on a debate team really set up his path to future success in the field. We were obsessed with it. And then after the competition, we would compare our preparation to other people's. The other people were not putting in that much time. So we would go, we would read through the case, the scenario that we would have. We would think about who's going to take what part of the negotiation. We'd come up with our strategy and then we would embody the scariest response from the other people. So no matter how tough the actual negotiation was, was we were already prepared just because we did so many reps. It was really empowering for me as like a, a future teacher mm-hmm. to see the transformation that I made, knowing that I've made that transformation. It's been really cool to see other people do the same thing too. Later, they talk about how Kwame looks at negotiations and conversations and specifically when to say no if you can't come to an agreement. So what is my ultimate goal? Why am I having the conversation? Those type of things. And I have to also remember what negotiation and conflict resolution is at the end of the day. Like those two things are problem-solving tools. They are not the only way to solve problems. Every time I come into a negotiation, I'm a diplomacy-first kind of guy. I'm going to give you an opportunity to work with me to try to figure this out. But if we are not able to come to a conclusion and I still have needs that need to be met, then I will have a plan B Mm -hmm. to meet my needs, right? So for me, I think about these conflicts as an opportunity for us to work together, to move in the right direction. And at the same time, I'm providing you with an opportunity to be part of the solution. And they wrap up the show with some great advice from Kwame for anyone out there looking to be an entrepreneur. Start. That's the advice. Whenever I think about my businesses, any of these things that I started, the only regret that I have is not starting it sooner because you have to get bad reps out of the way. So you're going to be bad. Like whenever, because we have like 600 episodes now, (laughs) negotiate anything is crazy. But sometimes people say, I started listening from the beginning. I just discovered your podcast and I started from the beginning. I'm like, oh, please don't. Mike and Josh had a great time talking with Kwame and there is some highly valuable information in this episode. So definitely stick around with that. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here, and we are both in the booth again. Josh. Dude, you got to get better at that. I know. Just practice one time. I don't practice at all. It's just whatever comes to mind at the time, and people have to accept the fact that I'm just awkward on a mic sometimes. That is true. At least they don't have to be face-to-face with you, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. They're lucky uh, audio is remote. Dude, I'm good. I know you're going to ask me that next. Today, what's happened to me You still thinking about moving? Um, I'm still upset that that came up. So our guest here is a friend today, so I'm going to look at him, but he's not going to be able to talk because I haven't introduced him yet. But on the last episode of the show, Josh, no, this was two episodes ago, Josh brought up mid-episode that he was looking at moving to North Carolina and he hasn't told me yet. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? You can't just bring that up mid-episode. And he's over here like, well, he's just, I'm just going to keep talking like I didn't just reveal a big secret to Mike. But yeah, sorry. Okay, so. That's not a big secret. Everybody in Ohio wants to move. It's That's just not whether, true. I don't want to move. They're going to act on it. So here's the compliment part of it, though. I won't move likely because I know it's very difficult to create the relationships I have here. Although I would love to be in an area with like mountains or something that wasn't, you know, flat land and freaking Arctic tundra nine months out of the year. I mean, if you move, then I'll know that you value those mountains more than our relationship. So I'm just guilt tripping you with that right now. 
Dude, I almost moved today. My garbage disposal <laughs> broke. If any of you guys can fix a garbage disposal, <laughs> I would love help with that. All right, all right. So I think that's enough of us gabbing, though, so we can bring in our guests. And today on the show, we are excited to be joined for the third time by our friend Kwame Christian. Kwame is a lawyer. He is the director of the American Negotiation Institute. He's an entrepreneur. He's a subject matter expert in the field of negotiation and conflict resolution, a best-selling author, and a podcast host, among many other impressive feats. That podcast, Negotiate Anything, is the top negotiation podcast on iTunes and all other app you're listening on. So go check it out if you haven't yet. But he also happens to be an author, having self-published one book and recently released his second book, How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. If you guys remember the last time we had Kwame on, we were in the thick of some difficult conversations about race. And we're excited to have Kwame back on the show because not only is he our friend, he's insightful, well-spoken, and always brings great messages and knowledge to the table. Welcome back to Conquering Columbus, Kwame. Hey, it is great to be back. And I'm glad that I can be here and serve as a mediator between you two. Uh, <laughs> you yeah, we, so just so people know, we were supposed to start this interview at six o'clock. It's currently 630. So we spent a lot of time chatting and I don't want to take up too much of your time today, Kwame, but we'll... Uh, well, we were going to go into a negotiation. Mike was saying he would fix my garbage disposal if I decided not to move. And then I said, well... You can't start a negotiation on false pretenses. It's well, just not going to work. I mean, so this, the answer is you're going to do it. And we're going to agree on the podcast. We have a verbal commitment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you know, since we're talking about negotiation, before we jump into too much of the stuff that you're doing today, for the people who missed the first two episodes, maybe give that 10,000 foot overview and the kind of the path that took you into this whole world of thought leadership around negotiation and difficult conversations. But leave just enough to make sure they have to go back and listen to the other two. <laughs> Perfect. Well, yeah, it was a very interesting journey here because not many people wake up at like six years old and say, you know what, mommy, I want to be a negotiation expert. That's not how the world works, right? I was a, a people pleaser when I was younger. And so for me, I studied psychology and that was one of the things I wanted to figure out how to overcome. Then when I went to law school, I discovered negotiation as a skill set by accidentally stumbling into a class. And I fell in love because I said, wow, this is the first time I can actually see that negotiation, self-advocacy, conflict resolution. It's a skill, not a talent. I can actually learn and get better. Never knew that. So they had these negotiation competitions at Ohio State's law school. And so my partner and I, after doing this one week course, we were just so gung-ho. We're like, let's do this competition. And we won the competition at OSU. That allowed us to represent the school at the regional competitions for the American Bar Association negotiation competition in Ottawa, Ontario. We won that as well. And then we made it to the semis of the national competition in New Orleans. So it's like somehow, somewhere, way I will make this my thing. I don't know how, because for me, I, it was so empowering. So I mm -hmm. wanted to be able to teach other people so they can have that same type of revelation. So for me, it really speaks to the motto of the American Negotiation Institute, where we believe the best things in life are on the other side of difficult conversations. So we are always trying to empower people to have those conversations so they can live better lives, make the world a better place and have better relationships. I'm assuming that in the early days, negotiation meant something a little bit different to you than what it does now, at least from my experience becoming more versed in topics, you see different perspectives, you get a deeper knowledge of it. When you look back on when you won the competitions and why, what sticks out to you and why you were able to achieve that? Do you think it was something that came natural to you? No, I think it was, and this is going to sound kind of cliche, but I think it was just hard work. We were obsessed with it. And then after the competition, we would compare our preparation to other people's. The other people were not putting in that much time. So we would go, we would read through the case, the scenario that we would have. We would think about who's going to take what part of the negotiation. We'd come up with our strategy and then we would embody the scariest response from the other people. 
And so then we would take turns going at each other over and over and over again. So no matter how tough the actual negotiation was, we were already prepared just because we did so many reps. Mm -hmm. And so again, that was why it was so empowering because I was saying to myself, I was terrible had these difficult conversations, really, really bad, like comically bad. It was really empowering for me as like a, a future teacher mm-hmm. to see the transformation that I made so I could push people a lot harder knowing that I've made that transformation. It's been really cool to see other people do the same thing too. What were some of those biggest challenges to overcome if you can think that far back that you struggled with? I think it's just the, and I talked about this in the TED Talk too. Mm -hmm. It's like, for me, I was so focused on the relationship and making other people happy that for me, I'm like, I don't want to risk anything that could jeopardize the relationship. So I always saw conflict as a bad thing, Mm -hmm. as a signal of something that's problematic in the relationship. But now my mentality is completely changed. I think about conflict as an opportunity. This is a good Mm -hmm. thing. Think about a relationship, right? If we're having conflict, yeah, it doesn't mean that things are perfect, right? <laughs> right? But it's a signal of two people who are still trying to make things better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so fundamentally true, especially like, you know, being a married guy, right? Like if you don't have conflict with your wife, then you're just not talking about it. Mm-hmm. And that's way, way worse. You exactly. let that stuff fester, you let that stuff grow, then it turns into something much worse than if you just kind of, hey, we got this thing we want to talk about. Well, you're going to have to talk about it, right? And if you can't, like, it's just so bad to bottle those things up because it's not good for you or the other person. Absolutely. In the long run. Yeah, you're, you're right. And I have a simple equation for when you can see conflict coming because mm-hmm. people always ask, how can you see conflict coming? It's a simple equation. So you take one person and then you take another person. And there will be conflict. And that's it. Yeah. One plus one <laughs> equals two. That, that, yeah. that's, that is it. Like it's inevitable, mm-hmm. right? And so we're, we're trying to live in this fantasy world where a conflict doesn't happen and it needs to happen. You know, it's, it's like a market correction <laughs> in, in our relationships. So mm-hmm. I think just giving people simple tools that they can actually put into action, that's been really powerful for me. And for me, as somebody who teaches this all the time, I think in my growth and development as a leader in the industry, it's been focusing on clarity of communication and simplifying the process. Mm -hmm. Because for me, I went through three degrees, lots of school, wrote books on this. So for me, the challenge is not trying to give everybody everything Mm -hmm. that they could possibly have, but just being really simple, really clear, and making sure that I'm giving tools that people can immediately put into action. If you don't understand how to do it, like right after I talk to you about it, and then I haven't done a good job of simplifying it enough. And to set the context a little bit more, so the 10,000 foot view on the background was helpful, 10,000 foot view on the professional career with respect to where we're at today with negotiation piece. I know you were still practicing law for some time. You were juggling both at once and then pieces, dominoes started to fall. So over the last four or five years, how has everything come together? With difficulty. It's been tough. It's been tough. What do you mean? I I see Instagram all the time. It looks pretty easy. Listen, that's that's what Instagram is for. (laughs) Things look easy. Mom and dad, everything's great. You know, right? Life's good. (laughs) I got no problems. No problems at all. But yet it was challenging because I I say I'm a a stereotypical uh, Caribbean American. I have way too many jobs. Like why why am I doing so many things? You know, so I had to pare it back a little bit because at the time, yeah, probably last time we were chatting, Mm -hmm. it was the American Negotiation Institute. Mm -hmm. I was working with the law firm of counsel. So every once in a while, I'll do some deals just to keep my skills sharp. I was teaching at Otterbein's MBA program, negotiation and uh, communication, teaching at Ohio State's law school, Mm -hmm. and then running a business, building a staff, running a podcast. I mean, a podcast is a business by itself, Yep. right? So my business was really two businesses. So it was a lot. So I had to figure out a way to make everything become a little bit more cohesive. And so when I think about, I'm a chess nerd, you all know this, I love playing chess. So when I'm thinking about 
putting myself in the best position. What chess piece do I move? What move do I make? Those type of things. I realized I had to, you know, simplify my life. Less is more. Mm -hmm. And so at the beginning of my career, being a professor at those two schools, that was huge because people are saying, well, how do I know you're good at what you do? When you think about the biases uh, associated with negotiation experts, if you just sit there and think about a negotiation expert, a 27-year-old black guy is not what people think. Right. So I'm like, okay, we have to, I have to build a little bit more credibility. Right. So six years of doing it after doing it for some time, it's like, all right, I love teaching, but mm -hmm. the return on investment isn't there. And it, it's not helping my career the same way it did at the beginning. Yeah. So I don't need that additional credibility with the law firm. Now I only work when it fits, when it's a really mm -hmm. cool, interesting negotiation, you know, so I want to do that so I can keep my skills sharp in that regard. But you know, protecting the time. And so now I'm just focusing on making the American Negotiation Institute grow mm -hmm. and be stable and just be that long-term asset that I want to be. Mm -hmm. And so you see, that's me transitioning into entrepreneurial Kwame, right? right. <laughs> so I have to think in that business type of focused way. Yeah. And so now I'm going to ask, how does a book fit all into this? Yeah. Because right? when you say that, you know, focusing on American Negotiation Institute and then writing a book that's focused on obviously a very difficult topic, but maybe not so much focused on negotiation in a sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like not the typical thing people think of when they think of negotiation. And so how does that fit in with that idea of, hey, I want to focus more on entrepreneurial things and the American Negotiations Institute, but I'm also going to write this book. Yeah. And you want to know something funny, guys, when um, it was just a... <laughs> Just a couple of weeks ago that I realized this, I was watching some like some Netflix uh, movie and uh, the person was an author and like that was her whole job. Yep. Being an author, I was like, man, I added another job. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, Because <laughs> that was work. That was a lot of work. So this is the strategy here, because for me, the first book, there was really clear synergy with what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Negotiation, conflict resolution, book title, finding confidence in conflict. Really great branding piece. Got my methodology cohesively put into one position. So that's really good. We can clearly see how that's a really important move to make. This one was a lot riskier mm -hmm. because I did civil rights work when I was like straight out of law school. So working on health inequity, those type of things. I have that background. And at the beginning of my time with the American Negotiation Institute, I was really hesitant to talk about anything diversity related mm -hmm. because it's really easy for a black professional to be pigeonholed into that right. little box where you're like, you are an expert in being black and that's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want that for my career. So I was actually actively moving away from it. And it's heavy. It's heavy to talk about these things. But one of the things that was interesting when I was doing the civil rights type of work, I realized that the professionals in that space were really struggling with difficult conversations because they say, all right, I have this data. I have these facts, the statistics, I have my life experience. I'm going to share my story, share the data, and then people will change their perspectives and we'll be able to make the world a better place. And then <laughs> they're like, well, what happens when facts don't work? Right. Right. I was like, that sounds like a dream. That's a pipe dream. <laughs> exactly. So they didn't have those persuasive skills. Over the time with the American Negotiation Institute and Negotiate Anything, the podcast, there was an evolution that I made with regard to what I thought of as negotiation. You can even think about it with the growth of the podcast, because I don't know if you all remember this, but the podcast was first titled Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So that's Kwame, business lawyer, recognizing entrepreneurs will need to negotiate. I'm thinking transactionally. Then I surveyed the audience and I found out only a third of the audience was uh, identified as entrepreneurs. They were listening in for just conversational skills. So I broadened it to negotiate anything. So for us, the definition we use for negotiation is anytime you're in a conversation and somebody in the conversation wants something, right? So we're negotiating all the time. So I started having different people on the show, teachers, relationship therapists, 
police and investigators, FBI agents, you know, all of these different people, because they all have their unique spins on their difficult conversations that they're having. And it's like intellectual cross trading. Mm -hmm. So for me in 2020, I had to ask myself, what's the most difficult conversation people are having? And it was clear that it was race. And Mm -hmm. so I put together this free seminar to see, you know, I'll help people reluctantly might I add, right. uh, Whitney had to talk me into doing that, my wife. And um, then a literary agent reached out and said, hey, we have your next book. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember you at the time posting on LinkedIn and other places about the topic. And I was kind of imagining you behind it going, I hope nobody responds to this. Yes, that's exactly what I was saying. So let's break this down. This is in the introduction of the book that is so creatively titled, How to Have Difficult Conversations <laughs> About Race. I hit the nail on the head now. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what should I title it? Yeah, well, yeah, here it is. Right. And so when I left doing civil rights work, I left completely like it's like a prodigal son type of story. Like I'm gone. I decided I'm not even watching the news anymore. I stopped watching the news. Anytime anybody posted anything political or race related, talking about injustice of any kind, I would block them on social media. Whitney Christian included. Our relationship was great. Blocked Whitney. I don't want to hear about any of this. And so I was still completely abstaining. This is what, four years into the American Negotiation Institute at this point. I'm just seeing all of these people posting pictures of random black guys on their Instagram. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I know it's not good. So I'm just going to, you know, go back into my turtle shell, wait for this to blow over. There's a pandemic. How long could this last? Let me just wait it out. And uh, it just never went away. So Whitney had a conversation with me. She's like, well, Kwame, I mean, you're the difficult conversations guy and you're always telling people not to avoid difficult conversations. And this is exactly what you're doing right now. I was like, well, that's, that's a pretty significant indictment. It was clear hypocrisy. And then also the fact that people want to have these conversations and then I'm uniquely qualified given the fact that I have a background in civil rights. I'm one of the few black faces in the negotiation and conflict resolution. People are looking to me for answers and I'm not there. So Mike, you're spot on because I'm like, all right, okay, all right, fine. You guilted me. I'm going to do this. So I am going to put together this little webinar called How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll be a little Zoom free webinar. Little, and little, little webinar. one, right? right. <laughs> and so like it, I, I scheduled it for Friday. At noon, I was like, when do people not want to do a webinar? Friday afternoon, they don't want to do it then. When will I start marketing it? I'll market it on Wednesday. I'll make a post. I made this post. This post went viral. I was like, oh no, it's working. It's working. This is crazy. So we maxed out Zoom capacity. Over a thousand people like registered and showed up. People all around the world. Mm -hmm. And I said, listen, I'll do a little presentation and then I'll just stay as long as you want for this Q&A. Like three and a half hours later, it ended. I was like, oh man, that was tough. Mm-hmm. But it was invigorating. I really liked it. And I think the thing that helped me this time around going back into this type of work is the fact that I'm very narrow with my approach. Mm-hmm. So I tell people, I'm not going to tell you how to think about race. I'm going to tell you how to talk about race. Right. Race, all the other sensitive topics. This is a really unique angle on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because for me, it's a skill set. Mm-hmm. It's about learning how to connect with other people right? Building those cultures. And if we don't focus on like a rules-based type of thing, don't do this, don't do that. You can say this, but you can't say that. No, if we just teach people the skills for how to communicate across Mm -hmm. difference, 
that's all we really need. And so the, the market's been responding really well to that. Yeah, I believe it. I, I guess the thing that I would have been most concerned about in your situation would be people showing up to that webinar for the wrong reasons. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I'm a little pessimistic about people these days with all the news and stuff, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, did everybody that showed up show up with an open mind and the right reasons or did you have to deal yeah. with, did you have to have some difficult conversations in the webinar? I was shocked, man. I was shocked. Everybody was on their best behavior. Like I was blown away. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of people showed up, you know, thousands registered, but hundreds showed up. Mm -hmm. And like, I think we got to like six, seven, eight hundred, something in that range, you know, and everybody was really respectful. I think there were, you know, of course, there's going to be some back and forths in the right. comments, but everybody was, for the most part, very respectful. That's like good. even in all the times I'm doing this stuff, everybody's been really respectful, which is really encouraging to see because mm -hmm. I think everybody's just looking for answers. Nobody has all the answers, but we're looking to learn. And there's a genuine curiosity there. Yeah. And then every once in a while on LinkedIn, when somebody, I might post something, there might be some skeptic or somebody who kind of wants to be a little bit trollish. For me, again, thinking about conflict as an opportunity, it's not a problem. This is great because it's an opportunity for me to showcase my skills. I'm glad that you did it publicly because I can show you how to have respectful mm -hmm. conversation in the mm -hmm. comments. And what's funny is whenever you have those reasonable, respectful responses, you know what <laughs> you know what happens? They, they go the other direction. They, they Yeah, they, just, they come to your side. They're like, oh, I get it. Or they disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're like, yeah. hmm, what I said was unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he didn't get angry at me and yell at me? Uh, <laughs> exactly. That, wait, my plan wait, has I failed. Was, I was trolling you, sir. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, no, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And I think it's absolutely true, right? If you respond with respect. But the question I have would be as someone who works on difficult conversations all the time, negotiate anything. When do you walk away? When do you walk away from a negotiation? That's a tough one. And honestly, this is something that I've had to do more of because walking away isn't something I have been good at in the past. It's like since coming on this journey. And there's a simple reason why. Ego. Mm -hmm. Ego. I'm like, I'm Kwame I Christian. Can I can figure this out. Yeah. It'll be a great story when I do. You know, but not all conversations can be productive because mm -hmm. the thing is it takes two to tango, so to speak. And if I'm, think about a two-year-old. Right. I can bring out all of my best negotiation skills against a two year old, but a two year old is just like unreasonable. Can't mm -hmm. do much about that. Right. And so I have to realize that there needs to be some level of compliance on the other side. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I think about the opportunity cost of continuing versus solving my problem another way. And then I also think about time investment, too. So what is my ultimate goal? Why am I having the conversation? Those type of things. And I have to also remember what negotiation and conflict resolution is at the end of the day. Like those two things are problem solving tools. They are not the only way to solve problems. And so, you know, getting a little nerdy with the negotiations talk right now, but you have the concept of BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So every time I come into a negotiation, I'm a diplomacy first kind of guy. I'm going to give you an opportunity to work with me to try to figure this out. But if we are not able to come to a conclusion and I still have needs that need to be met, then I will have a plan B mm -hmm. to meet my needs, right? So for me, I think about these conflicts as an opportunity for us to work together, to move in the right direction. And at the same time, I'm providing you with an opportunity to be part of the solution, but you might not want to be part of the solution. So I have to find other ways to solve the problem too.
Hey, everybody. Mike here. We're going to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. And we are very excited to partner with One Columbus. They really, really share the same vision as us here at the Conquering Columbus podcast, which is really building up the Columbus region to be one of the most prosperous regions in the United States. And One Columbus serves as the business location resource for companies across central Ohio and around the world as those companies grow, innovate, and compete within the global economy. And they help us lead a regional growth strategy that develops and attracts the world's most competitive companies, grows a highly adaptive workforce, and prepares our communities for the future, inspiring innovation across the board. Their mission really is just ensuring the Columbus region is a vibrant place to build businesses and careers. So again, we really appreciate all of their support. You want to learn more about them, go check out their website, columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back into the episode. When you go back to that webinar and you reflect on that, were there two or three or four or a dozen things that you just like really key points that you hope people walked away from when they got off of that? Keeping it really simple, it was letting people know that there's value in having these conversations. Mm -hmm. So there's value just whoever you happen to be. So for instance, let's say you think the world is a, a terrible place. You want to be an advocate. You want to be an ally. Great. You should have these conversations because in my opinion, if you're an ally, one of your main goals should be recruiting more allies. <laughs> right. I'm not trying to like go to war with everybody mm -hmm. because even if you win, you lose because nobody's like, hey, you know what? Well, maybe you two are. I mean, you wrestled, you know, but, you know, this person beat me up. Want to join their <laughs> team. That's not how it works unless you're Kevin Durant. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's just not how the world works in general. And so let's say you think the world is fine. There's no problems. Right. A lot of times those conversations will come upon you. You didn't choose them. The conversation shows you. You're kind of stuck. So how do you get out of the conversation while still being respectful, maintaining the relationship? That's a negotiation skill too. You know, so I think number one, just letting people know that there's value in having the conversations. Mm -hmm. And then number two, there's a really simple framework. And so in the first book and in the second book, I talk about the compassionate curiosity framework. Acknowledge and validate emotions, get curious with compassion, join problem solving and cycle through that in different ways throughout the conversation. And just keeping it super simple for people, I think was the biggest takeaway that I had in that. We just had to have attainable and manageable goals during that presentation. Yeah. I think one of the things you said in there is the thing to me that stands out the most when I look at politics or these types of conversations across both sides of the political spectrum is we never anymore start from a place of, hey, we both want what's best for the country and what's best for each other, right? We just disagree. It's always you're this or you're that and it's name calling and it's, I mean, we see it at the highest level, right? And that's what people fall into is, well, our politicians are doing it and this is the way they have these discussions. So obviously this is the way we should have these discussions, but it's all a show. Yeah. It's all for the looks, the views. If I get my name out there, I'm going to get more votes. So it's all for generating the most Twitter retweets, right? And that's not how we should have these discussions. And it can't come from a place of I'm morally superior to you. I'm this, I'm that, right? Whatever side you're on. Maybe I'm not doing a good job of explaining what I'm talking about here, but I feel like there's just a lot of need to be smarter, superior. Well, that's or, the point that like on your framework that you talk about when you, especially when you say joint problem solving, that I think tethers it all together in my brain, at least, is that if I'm going into a conversation and my goal is to have a joint problem solving, I'm immediately saying in a passive way that I'm not superior and I might not have the answer. And it's a sense of vulnerability that I don't think you see in a lot of these conversations. No. Right? Like everybody wants to walk in with the they answer. They want to win. And mm -hmm. I'm guilty they go of in it. wanting to win. Yeah, and I'm yeah. guilty of it every day. You know, it's like I'll be talking with clients and it's like, if I step back and say, look, is this really the best solution? But I feel like I have to have the answer and you got to move quick. And sometimes mm -hmm. I think you just get caught up in the typical, this natural instinctual way of thinking as a human, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's 
hard to sit back and say, okay, look, maybe I don't know the answer, but together we can find it. Exactly. It reminds me of Steve Covey, if you've read Covey at all, Mm -hmm. right? He talks about the win-win, right? It's a concept. It's one of his seven habits. Think win-win. And he talks about when you're in a relationship with someone or a negotiation, like you said, you got win-win, win-lose, or lose-lose. Or you can lose-win, but nobody wants to lose-win. But you know what I mean? So like win-lose is I want to win and I want you to suffer for it, right? And I want you to know that you lost. And then lose-lose is I don't care if I win, but I'm making sure I'm burning the whole ship down with me, (laughs) right? And then you have win-win which is what people want to work towards. And that's how you have to come at these discussions. If you're not coming at it from a win-win perspective, then it's not going to go well. Right. I mean, think about it. If we think about the challenges that both of you described really well, it comes down to a couple of things. We have tribalism as one. And we have to think about the fact that we are just genetically created for it. Like this Mm -hmm. is just the way that the brain works. Right. And so when we're always going to self-segregate in some capacity, we'll do it by race. We'll do it by religion. We'll do it by like socioeconomic status. That's just how the brain works. Right. And so it's in group versus out group group bias. If you're on my team, then I'll defend you. I'll rock with you, whatever you say. If you're not on my team, then I need to defeat you. So when we think about the tribalism, there's an ego that goes with that too. So during the conversation, we're trying to defeat the person by lording our moral superiority and intellectual superiority over them throughout the interaction. Now, let's say hypothetically, let's say you are in fact Let's say there's some way to determine this. And you are actually on this. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's say you are actually morally superior and intellectually superior. And you walk into that conversation with that level of arrogance. It doesn't matter. You will still fail because people will disagree just to spite you. Mm-hmm. Right. We're oftentimes approaching these conversations in a way where we make it almost impossible for the person to agree with us or give us any credit for any idea that we propose just because we're coming at it with such vitriol that it is just completely unpalatable, Mm -hmm. right? And so again, I think it's important to put this caveat out there that the book is focused on workplace discussions. So we say practical tools for necessary conversations in the workplace and beyond. So we put and beyond because you know, you're know you going to have to talk about other mm-hmm. things to other people outside of the workplace. But I want to really focus there because relationships matter in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. The relationships matter. It's not healthy to have an environment where we literally hate each other at work, right? So there's an assumption throughout the book that the relationship to some extent matters. There's also an assumption that if you want to create change within an organization, you kind of have to be in the organization (laughs) to to create the change, right? And if you're constantly burning bridges, you're probably not going to be in the organization very much too, right? So Mm -hmm. those are some of the assumptions we're focusing on the relationship throughout. How has the book been received so far? Have you gotten any feedback? Yeah, some surprising feedback. Not surprising in that it was positive, but surprising in that I didn't know these people were reading the book. And so there was a lady who reached out for a workshop actually in Washington. And she's like, oh, Kwame, I loved your book. I was like, oh, great. I'm glad you like Finding Confidence and Conflict. They're like, no, the next one. I was like, oh my gosh, is there a data leak? How did this get out, right? What's the problem? But she's like, I'm part of this early reader organization mm-hmm. with my library. So I get to see sneak peeks of upcoming books and I really liked it. So I reached out for the training. And so she said, she's been in in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion for 12 years. And Mm -hmm. she's been looking for a resource like this because a lot of the books, like I said, it's focused on moral and intellectual superiority, regardless of whether or not it's accurate. 
The mm-hmm. fact is, it's not persuasive. So a lot of times those books are written for people who are already bought in. But if you give it to somebody who's not bought in, it is going to be completely unpalatable. Like right. they can't even digest it. They can't get past chapter one, you know? And so for me, I wanted to create something that was geared towards the outcome that we're looking for. Outcome-oriented conversations. What's the outcome? Let's create a strategy based on these principles that have been proven in so many different realms mm-hmm. and just bringing it to this new conversation. What I think is interesting to me about diversity, equity, inclusion in these challenges, right, is that I think that it's almost, and I don't want to call it a chicken and the egg problem, but if you're surrounded by diversity, you see it and you feel it and you know and you get it, right? But if you spend your time in a not diverse situation, you don't ever see those perspectives and you don't understand. You can't know what you've never seen or missed, right? You can't miss what you've never had, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important. It's hard for me. Let me back it up. I grew up in a bubble, Mm -hmm. right? I live in a town called Rancho Penasquitos. It's in San Diego. Wait. Yeah. In San Diego. You're from, wow. I know. It that's hasn't come up. crazy. I don't think it's come up in like 10 episodes, so I feel like that's a record. I'm going to San Diego next week. Where you going? Um, La Jolla? La Jolla? I mean, I, it just says San Diego. I guess oh. I'm going there. <laughs> <laughs> tell me where you're at and I'll tell you where to go. But, okay, so the point is, I grew up in a bubble and nowhere's perfect, but San Diego is very, very progressive, diverse area, and then came to Ohio and I thought it was going to be terrible, but I was in Columbus, so it was okay. But you go... 30, 40 minutes outside of Columbus and things get a little different, right? And I'd never seen any of that before. And that kind of just really had a weird impact on me. So what I realized was that I had privilege in growing up in an area where you didn't see a lot of that. And there was diversity and there was people and you have this like perception that everybody just thinks like that. And it's like, everybody's just had this experience and knows this and knows these things, but it's not always true. And learning to empathize with people who didn't have that same experience was very, very difficult. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And Josh, you're from Toledo, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm from Tiffin, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm from those places that you were right. just <laughs> describing. Right. So imagine a Caribbean American guy, mm-hmm. the only black kid in the school and with a strong Caribbean accent. Now I've code switched so much. I, this is my business American accent. Right. For me, Toledo was the big city. Like that was a big deal. We're going to Toledo. This is great. Right. (laughs) And so it's tough when you're living in a place where you're not exposed to Mm -hmm. diversity, diverse opinions, those type of things. There's no way for you to fully appreciate it. It's just it is not possible. In the book, I talk about there are two types of empathy. So we have intentional empathy and automatic empathy. So intentional empathy is a skill. It's something you do. It's effortful. So I need to work hard to understand how you see, think and feel about the situation. But automatic empathy is not a choice. So I look at you and for whatever reason, I see you as part of my tribe. And so if you're part of my tribe, it's easier for me to empathize with you. I have the Mm -hmm. positive bias towards you. Right. And it's interesting to see how this manifests itself in different ways. Right. So the book is about race. Let's talk about race. Y'all are white. I'm black. So it's easy for people from the outside looking in say, okay, they're not part of the same tribe. OSU Buckeyes. Yep. Entrepreneurs. We have a lot of podcasters, things. podcasters, chess players, one, you know, some <laughs> yeah. of us, some of us, right? <laughs> but, um, Josh, but eventually we'll get them on we'll that get, trend. We'll get you. I checkers. If you flip the board, I can play. There we go. And if you flip the board, I can't play. Yeah, right? checkers ain't my game. <laughs> Not my game. So yeah, it's just realizing that depending on your perspective, you'll see somebody within your group or outside of your group too. But it helps us to understand why we are, it seems like we're living in different worlds because we really are, mm-hmm. Right. Something else I talk about in the book is the concept of fairness. Fairness is relative. I think something's fair if it works for me. That's it. 
not whether or not it is like objectively fair. So yeah. whenever somebody brings up fairness, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fun conversation because what does that mean to you? Right. So people who are feeling as though they are not being treated fairly, it's easier for them to see unfairness. If everything is working well for you in certain contexts, then you don't see it as a problem. If it's not a problem for me, it's not a problem that I can see. Right. Simple example. When for me growing up, my dad my brother and my mom. So mom was outnumbered gender wise, right? Mm -hmm. So we always left the seat up, not a problem. Then I went to the dorms, living with guys all the time, not a problem. Not a problem. Then I get married to Whitney, all of a sudden, my behaviors are a problem, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Okay, so this is, now that you brought this up, I have to mention, there is actually, someone did the math there's like a study that was like, statistically speaking, if you have this many men versus women in the house, then leaving the seat up is more efficient. And I can't remember what the number was, but I think it's like four to one or something like that. But somebody actually did a study on that and said, okay, here's where it's more efficient to leave the seat up. Listen, I will tell you, this is the first time in my life mm-hmm. that I considered having a third son after you told me that stat. No, yeah, just get over the <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I just said it was more efficient. I didn't say it was good. For you or your marriage? No, I heard it was great for me and my marriage. That's what that is <laughs> right, what I heard. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so sorry, I tend to do this. I get a, a sidetracked on useless tangents that don't matter to what, the conversation. What but, about what about the Oprah Network piece? Let's dive into that. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. really curious. That was fun. That was fun. So I always had this vision of having a TV show. And so this was always part of the plan because my thing is it's about exposure. Thinking Mm -hmm. about Grant Cardone, he's like exposure. That's the number one issue for entrepreneurs. People don't know you. They don't know what you do. So podcasting, great. That was part of it. TED Talk, great. Book, great. All part of that. But that was a piece of media that I was really interested in because it still had a lot of prestige. So when you look at the way that the podcast is actually the intellectual property, like the trademark for Negotiate Anything. It's not just trademarked as a podcast, but Mm -hmm. it's also trademarked as a TV show because that was always the plan. And so had a few opportunities. We pitched to a a few networks like CNBC to some other networks. I can't remember all of them, but the Oprah Winfrey Network was the one that, oh, Food Network too. But Oprah Winfrey Network was the one that was most interested. So we flew down to LA, did some recording. It went really, really, really well, really well. And so that was the pitch and felt really good about it. Then the producer came back to me about a month later and said, hey, well, listen, they loved you. They thought you were great on camera. They thought you were charismatic. And then this was the line. This is the line. They said, but they were concerned that you would be too clinical in your approach and you wouldn't bring the drama like some of the other talent on the network. And I was like, wait a second, am I being penalized for being good at what I do? Yes. (laughs) Like, okay, well, yeah, you're right. I would resolve the conflict really quickly. I'm not here to make the world a worse place. Think back to the conversation we were Mm -hmm. having at the beginning when we were talking about politicians and the the media, Mm -hmm. like stoking up conflict. Think about sports shows now. We don't just talk about sports. People need to be arguing all yeah. the time. It's all debate. All the time. Right? Skip and Shannon Sharp, oh man. Oh my gosh. I yeah. can't do it anymore. Right? And so I just, I, I refuse to feed into that. I refuse. So the deal didn't go through. But for me, I mean, I took it as a win mm-hmm. because people saw like, oh yeah, he's good at what he does, which will make him bad at what we want him to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, knowing when to walk away. You had this vision. 
But I think it takes so much optimism to do that, right? Because you believe you're like, hey, you walk away from that. And you're like, well, you didn't say, OK, that's it. I'm done with the TV show. I remember on LinkedIn, you said, look, we're still going to get this. It's just going to take some more time and I'm going to do it the right way. And that's so much optimism, man. Like you have to have that unshakable belief in optimism in your vision and just not doing it the wrong way. Exactly. And what's funny about that is that I got that news in February. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was in May that we started talking to LinkedIn because I already have a, a ton of courses on LinkedIn learning. So we have a great relationship with them in that regard. But then they started a LinkedIn podcast network. And so they're like, hey, you know, let's chat about that. Mm -hmm. Let's chat. I was like, no way. Really? And so remember, first time we talked, I just struck a deal with a podcast mm -hmm. network. And then this came along and it was just a better deal. But thankfully, I had a good relationship with my podcast network at the time. And I was able to negotiate out of that deal and get into the LinkedIn network deal. And the LinkedIn podcast deal is far more lucrative than what the Oprah deal would have been. And it also gets us a lot more exposure and it puts us in partnership with an organization that matches our values because I still have 100% creative control. Everything is exactly the same, same amount of episodes. They're not telling me what to do, how to do it, those type of things. I can still do it my way, but with the support of a massive company mm -hmm. behind us. And it has been really, really great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's got to feel good to get it going. And when something comes together like that, it always just works out. So I feel like we've talked about a lot. You and I talked about Maurice Ashley earlier. You got the chance to interview Chess Grandmaster, which I'm sure had to be a lot of fun. And there's so many other things we could talk about, but I know we're uh, already probably 20 minutes long past when uh, you were supposed to be heading home. So we don't want Whitney getting too mad with us. So we'll head towards some of our last questions of the show. Perfect. So ask this every time. Any advice for our listeners out there? People thinking about being entrepreneurs, people doing young professional thing, anything, right? Any advice for them? Start. That's the advice. Whenever I think about my businesses, any of these things that I started, the only regret that I have is not starting it sooner because you have to get bad reps out of the way. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be bad like at anything that when you first start, like whenever, because we have like 600 episodes now. <laughs> negotiate anything is crazy. But sometimes people say, I started listening from the beginning. I just discovered your podcast and I started from the beginning. I'm like, oh, please don't, don't do go that. There. Don't, <laughs> go there. don't go there. Yeah. Come on We're, now. I'm the same yeah. way, man. Like, don't go back to our first episode. You don't <laughs> want to listen to that. Yeah. So I'm like, no, okay. You have, you have to get those out of the way. And then the reality is with business, I like, um, I think it's Eisenhower's quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Mm -hmm. Everybody loves to sit in the ideation stage. Everybody loves to stroke their ego and create this beautiful strategy. They love to take it to their friends, show it off like it's something real, like, oh, look at this strategy. And then they pat you on the head. You're like, you're so smart. This makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, totally will work. And then you put it out there and you're like, nothing works. What's happening? Right. You have to figure out what works. And the only mm -hmm. way to do that is by taking action because you have to think about it. I have a shot clock for decision-making, mm -hmm. right? So for me, I think, all right, how much time do I need to spend thinking through this before I take action? And sometimes the people who are like the most intelligent are the people who are most ineffective in business because they're so busy thinking about all the different things that could happen without doing the one thing that would actually get them the information that they want to know, which is doing the thing, mm -hmm. right? Because we can think mm -hmm. about different ways that this could work out, right? Or I could just come up with a plan, say, all right, I'm going to think about this for seven days. Boom, seven days done. I'm going to get all the advice that I can, do all the research that I can. Then on the eighth day, <laughs> on the eighth day, Kwame put his plan into action. And then on the ninth day, he found out that he was 85% wrong. Great. So but that 15% matters. Exactly. So I'm going to build on that 15% and I'm just going to keep on getting incrementally better. But people are so afraid to fail that they don't even take the time to start. So whatever it is that you're thinking about doing, start, get the failures out of the way so you can start winning. Yeah. Love it. Really good advice. And you know what? I feel like I've asked you our final question twice. So I'm going to 
put a little pivot on it. I'm going to do a little change something up here. Our theme of the show is live uncomfortably. You've answered how you feel about that in the past. But what I want to know is what's the way you've lived uncomfortably recently that has had a positive impact on your life? Oh, I would say it's this. It's the... um. There's so many ways. Pick <laughs> pick one. I would say one, I'll give you two things. So one is being more assertive and direct as a leader. And so giving people clearer advice and then recognizing, listen, at the end of the day, I'm the CEO. It's my company. So we have to make decisions. And whether we win or lose, it all comes down to me, right? So we need to get in line and start doing things. So being more assertive. I mm-hmm. like to be more laid back. And I think it's some of that people pleaser in me lingering. The other thing is going as hard as I can with this book. Because like I said before, I was afraid of getting pigeonholed. And then also you have that fear of success too, because I always wanted to have a book that was a bestseller because I wanted to have that type of impact. And so we got the bestseller list for Amazon on the first one, which is good. I like that. That's good. But I want like Wall Street Journal bestseller list or New York Times. You want that New York Times? I want that. And so I'm like, this is the best shot I have. And so I had a strategy I was putting into the place and everything like that. And then a few weeks ago, I was like, you know what? Let me just focus on generating more sales, put business um, structures in place. I'm, I'm not going to go as hard as I can. And I realized that was just fear. Mm-hmm. It was fear because for this to be something that I've been aiming for for such a long time, to know that I could put everything into it mm-hmm. and then fail Mm-hmm. in such an objective type of undeniable way. Did you make the list or not? I realized that it was my fear of success and fear of failure, like a blend of the two that mm-hmm. was holding me back. I didn't want to have that failure on my record. And then also the reality is that if I am successful, that comes with a lot more pressure, the weight of expectation, because I had my whole career playing as the underdog. And that's easy because mm-hmm. if you lose, nobody's going to hold it against you. They're going to be like, oh, that was cute. Kwame, nice try. Right. And I don't feel bad about it. But then it's like, all right, if I hit this, now people are looking at me as the person who should be succeeding. And so with every award and everything that I've won, it just created more and more and more and more pressure. And so I realized that I was trying to tank it mm-hmm. in order to avoid that pressure. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. And Kwame, it actually reminds me of one last story that I'll share and then we'll sign off here. But Tervel Delagnev is a uh, Olympic bronze medalist that used to train Ohio State Wrestling Room and he coached there for a little while. And I remember Tervel told one story and it reminds me a lot of what you just said. He said, hey, no one ever gives 100%. You know why? Because if you give 100% and you fail, there's only one answer. You just weren't good enough, right? And you have to accept that and work from there. Like what you said, you know, hey, I went and did the other things. It's all other things because it's terrifying to give 100% of something that you really wanted, knowing if you don't get it, you have to accept it. I didn't do it the right way or I screwed up, right? Or I wasn't good enough at that time. But to take a positive spin on that is, hey, like we said earlier, get started, try, fail. If you fail, you just got to go back and try again. Bingo. And you know you're going to get better. Spot on. So. And, you know, it's funny watching Dominic grow. So my uh, mm-hmm. my latest, uh, my latest, it is not how you describe children, the, <laughs> the new model of my child, right, right. Um, just seeing him grow. I'm realizing that it's such a great metaphor for just life in general, mm-hmm. because I could look at him and say, come on, man, just put one foot in, in front of the other. It's not that hard. Look, everybody's doing it. <laughs> but then I stopped and thought to myself, it's like, hey, Kwame, what if the next stage of human evolution was flying? Imagine mm-hmm. how freaked out you would be right now mm-hmm. if your mom was saying, hey, Kwame, jump off this building and fly, right? right. That's essentially what it is for Dominic at this point. But then what I'm realizing is that life is almost like a video game in that regard. So at Dominic's age, it's like learning how to stand up, sit up straight, walk, run, those type of things, right? But here it's the same thing, right? We look at these things and they're they're so daunting, so scary. And then the same things that is scaring us today, when we look back 10 years from the future, we're like, oh, that was formative. It's adorable how scared I was of it. 
but I needed that in order to develop. So I'm just trying to keep that consistent growth mentality. Like mm -hmm. the fact that it hurts, the fact that it's scary means that I'm on the right track and I'm doing the right things. Love it. Kwame, thanks so much, man. We always enjoy talking to you. It's been great. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it as well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. And Conquerors, if you want to learn more about Kwame and his team, then go visit the American Negotiation Institute.com. Yeah. And if you want to buy the book, it is How to Have Difficult Conversations About Race. I'm guessing you can find it on Amazon as well as many other providers. So go check that out. And again, thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate all your support. We will talk to you next week.